We'll open up your Bibles with me now to Romans chapter 13. We'll also release at this time those who are both serving in the nursery and anyone uh, who's going to be utilizing the nursery, and that would be kids who can crawl up through age three. Just down those steps and around the corner to the right, down the next set of steps, you'll find your way there at the bottom of the stairs. Romans chapter 13, we are finally back in the book of Romans. We have been studying this book together all told for a couple years now, but we've had some breaks, uh, and so we're now back at it after about a three-month break, and so I'm excited to, it, it, was, it was great for me to uh, Monday morning get to my office and get some of the things done that I I generally get done on Monday mornings and then open my Bible to Romans chapter 13 and start looking at the text for this week. Let's stand up together in honor of the Word of God as we read now the inerrant, infallible Word of the living God. Romans chapter 13, starting in verse 8. Owe no one anything except... To love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we rejoice in your living word. We pray this morning that you would give us ears to hear by your spirit. Give us hearts that are receptive to hear your word. In your kindness to us, Lord, convict us of sin and unrighteousness that that is hidden in our hearts. Lord, give us the grace to repent and to turn. Cause us to lift our eyes to you, the author and the finisher of our faith. Cause us to to trust in you such that, Lord, we live courageously, redeeming the time in these dark days. Pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. It has been a while since we've been in the book of Romans, so I want to just start off by reminding us of what's going on In this book, the first 11 chapters, the Apostle Paul has been unfolding for us what it is that God has done. He has given us in these first 11 chapters incredibly deep theology. This is mountaintop theology. This is ivory tower theology. This is glorious, at times difficult to understand. As he has meditated on the nature of God. Who is God? What is God like? on God's eternal purposes and plan in redeeming sinful humans by His grace, for His glory. Then in chapter 12, Paul made this transition from this first 11 chapters of doctrine and theology to the final five chapters which really apply all of that truth to our lives. How do we live our lives? How do we live as Christians? What does it look like to live the Christian life? How how ought we live in light of all of these glorious truths about who God is and what God has done and is doing? And so we read, as we come to chapter 12, 
In verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And that's how Paul sums up 11 chapters of deep theology. The mercies of God. These mercies that I just explained to you in the first two-thirds of this letter, I appeal to you based on that, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's the, that's the, the one command in light of all of this truth that, that God has revealed to us about who He is and what He is doing. And what He has done in saving us is just present all of yourselves as a living sacrifice to God. A holy, acceptable sacrifice. This is what true worship is. And then from, from this point forward in the rest of the book, Paul is giving very down-to-earth. Very, If the first 11 chapters take us into the ivory tower or to the mountain peak, the rest of this book brings us right down-to-earth with our hands in the dirt and our feet on the ground and says, live this way. This is how you walk this out. The, the, the string of directives that are laid out for us in the final five chapters are the outworking of a life of worship. They, they don't stand on their own. But the book of Romans is not just the final five chapters. Do this, don't do that. That's a, lot of, a lot of Christianity gets boiled down to this. What's our list of do's and our list of don'ts? And let's just focus on that. No, Paul wants us to see God in his splendor and in his glory and in his majesty and then says in the light of that here's the only sane way to live your life you want to know what worship looks like what it looks like to please God this is how you live what does it look like to be a living sacrifice to God what does it look like when someone's life has been transformed by the renewal of their mind Paul is describing for us what genuine Christians will look like must look like. And we'll see in next week's passage, we won't try to steal too much thunder from next week, there's an urgency, though, with which the Christian is to live their life. We, we live out this living sacrifice to God with urgency. The time is now. Our time is short. This is the moment. This is the moment to live with urgency. This is the moment to live as a living sacrifice. Now is the time for action. And, and, and Paul says, here's what motivates us. And just look at the verses for next week, starting in verse 11. Beside this, you know the time. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. There is an urgency to the Christian life. Whatever we do for the Lord, we must do in this life. This is it. This is, this is all we get. Life is short. Eternity is rushing towards us. We heard, as we prayed this morning, stories of people who didn't know how short life was going to be for them. 
It comes upon us sooner than we realize. And then we will see that life is just a vapor. And so Paul wants us to see that right now as we consider how we live our Christian lives and to live our lives with urgency, to live accordingly. So how, how are we supposed to do that? But that's what Paul is answering for us in the final five chapters of this book. And so far, he has instructed us to live a life of total personal surrender to God. That's the first thing. Everything else is going to flow out of that, this life that is fully surrendered. A living sacrifice, Paul says, to God. He has told us how we ought to act in the church. How it is that we are to to interact with those to whom God has called us to the closest of fellowship in the local church. He has told us how we ought to interact with the, the church capital C. The invisible church, the believers that we come in contact with, the believers around the world. What should our disposition be towards them? How should we interact towards one another? In the first verses of chapter 13, he has told us how to live in a society. How to understand and respond to governmental and civil authority. Christ's reign in our hearts has implications for every single aspect of our lives, and that includes how we interact with unbelieving governments, unbelieving authorities. And so now in verses 8 through 10, Paul tells us we actually have a debt to pay. We have an obligation, every one of us. We have a debt to pay to others. And he summarizes this debt with the words of the second great commandment. What is the first great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul, and your strength. And what is the second great commandment? Jesus says the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says this is our debt. It's something you owe to love your neighbor as yourself. And we all need to grow in this area. Every single one of us needs to grow in the area of our love for others. We, we know God's definition of love from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you've ever been to a wedding, you've heard it at least once in your life. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And now we, we may examine ourselves enough to hear that list and go, there's some of those I'm just not real good on. But it's actually pretty easy for us to give ourselves a pass, isn't it? We hear a list like that and we're like, I know some people. We, we very quickly... Switch to, I know some people need to really think about things in their lives because they're a mess. And, and we don't examine ourselves. But consider the direct implication of this statement. If you are an impatient person, if you're one of those people who like anytime you're anywhere and there's a line, you feel personally offended. Do they not understand how important I am? They must not. If you're unkind, If your speech or your thoughts are often ungracious. If you're prone to jealousy. If you brag about yourself. If you try to make yourself look better than you are. Also called just having an Instagram account. If you're arrogant. If you're rude. If you're demanding. If you're controlling. If you're easily offended. 
If you have a, a running tally going of all the ways any specific individual has wronged you and that comes to mind immediately anytime anyone does anything, you have this list of 25 offenses they've committed against you over all the years. If you keep track every time you feel disrespected, because who would dare disrespect you? If you try to justify unrighteousness in your life, if you make excuses for it. If you affirm the wickedness of other people in the name of love, which our culture tells us you must do. If you tolerate error and false teaching and untruth in your life. If you gossip. Or even if you don't speak the words of gossip and repeat them, but oh, you love to hear the details. Also called going to the coffee shop in Topeka. Oh, you love, you gotta know. You gotta hear. If you're quick to criticize, if you're quick to grumble, if you're quick to complain, if you have no grace for the flaws and imperfections and sins of others, you always tend to see the worst in other people. If you speak the truth, but you don't do it in love, but instead you do it to show how right you are or how righteous you are, or how wise and godly and smart you are, or because you like the adrenaline rush of conflict. If you love the first half of 1 Peter 3, verse 15, in your hearts honor Christ as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone for the faith that you have, but you don't like the rest of the verse, yet do it with gentleness and respect. If you have heard yourself on this list, then friend, you have a love problem. Your love does not measure up to God's standard of what love really is. And if you have just sat here and listened to this list and said, I'm nowhere on it. I am floating somewhere far above in the clouds with the angels on this one. Then you're so blinded by your sin that you don't know anything at all about yourself. We're all guilty. We are all guilty in this area. None of us lives up to God's standard, to his definition of love. Not perfectly. Not perfectly anyway. We all fall short. So now that our sin has been exposed, let's humble ourselves before the word of God this morning. Let's hear what he says to his people whom he loves by his spirit and trust that the spirit of God will bring appropriate conviction to us right where we are and by his grace empower us to change because he will. I have no doubt that for many of you as you heard that list you go yeah I struggle there but not like I did five years ago. Praise be to God. That's the work of his spirit in sanctification. Here's what Paul says, verse 8. Owe no one anything. Owe no one anything. This phrase has often been misunderstood and misapplied, used by well-meaning Christians to forbid things like mortgages, car payments, credit cards even. Borrowing money, having debt of any kind. And we do need to be good stewards of our financial resources. And so there is a discussion to be had for sure. 
about the taking on of unnecessary debt. But that's not what this verse is trying to do to us. It's not forbidding us from borrowing something. It's not forbidding us from borrowing money even. It's not a statement about credit cards or car loans or mortgages. It's not a statement about borrowing from another individual. Verse 8 comes right after verse 7. And verse 7 just told us, Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to who honor is owed. So he is not telling us in the next sentence, you don't owe anybody anything and you'll never owe anybody anything. That's obviously not what he is saying. What he's talking about is paying what is owed. We must pay our debts. We must pay what we owe. Psalm 37 verse 21 says, The wicked borrows but does not pay back. The righteous is generous and gives. And we could go through a a giant list of Old Testament passages that talk about the righteous, those who are blessed by God, being able to lend instead of borrow. That that, that, that shows forth the blessing of God in their generosity to, to lend. And so he's not saying that lending and borrowing are explicitly... Sinful. The, the NIV translation really gets to the heart of this command. It says, let no debt remain outstanding. That really does get to what Paul is saying here. That's the, that's the first time, by the way, I think in the history of my being the pastor here that I've been like, the NIV really gets it right here, guys. Just, uh, it's not the best translation, but it is getting to the heart of what Paul's saying right there in that statement. The best translation is, owe no one anything. Uh, But this is the heart of what Paul's saying. Let no debt remain outstanding. The idea here is, number one, don't incur unnecessary debt. Buying things you don't need with money you don't have to impress people you don't even like. Don't do that. Unnecessary debt will hinder you. It will hamper you. It will enslave you and ensnare you. It's probably the number one thing I'll say to someone who says, I believe I am called to the ministry. The first thing I will say to that man is, tighten up your finances. You better start living on a shoestring because unnecessary debt will prevent you from serving the Lord the way you want to. That's the first idea. The second is don't have any debts that you're not willing to pay. Don't have any debts that you are willfully not going to repay. It's a call to financial diligence for the sake of a clear conscience and a good name. As those who carry the name of Christ. Cyprian, an early church father, just 200 years after Christ, he wrote about the Christians of his generation with great frustration. And he said this, their possessions hold them in chains. Chains which shackle their courage, choke their faith, hamper their judgment, and throttle their souls. They think of themselves as owners, where it is they, rather, who are owned, enslaved as they are to their own things. They are not the master of their money, but its slaves. So although this is not a prohibition against borrowing, it's also true, Proverbs 22 verse 7 says, the borrower is the slave of the lender. That's true. 
And so it's easy for us to fall into the trap that unnecessary debt provides for us. It is very easy to go into debt. In fact, it's difficult not to. Everything is designed for you to go into debt. And you live in a nation who has set the tone in the most spectacularly awful way possible for us in how we live. The national debt of the United States has now surpassed $31 trillion. We're we're spending $1 to $3 trillion, depending on the year, more than we are bringing in as a nation. We're talking about numbers that are so big, it's just sort of sort of dumb. If you owe someone $1,000, that weighs on your conscience and makes it so you can't lose sleep. If you owe someone a billion trillion dollars, you sleep just fine. Because honestly, I'm never paying them back. What does it matter? Many Americans are following this example that our government has provided for us and continues to provide for us Every single day. And so Paul says to the Christian, owe no one anything. It's not just Paul saying it, it's a divine command. We must pay our debts. There is one debt Paul's going to tell us, though, that we will never be able to pay. We will never be able to fully pay it as long as we live. He says in the rest of that verse, owe no one anything except to love each other. Our debt of love to God first and to our neighbor second will never ever be paid. It will always remain for all of our lives. We are to first love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And it is essential for us, by the way, if we are going to navigate this life as Christians, that we keep that order straight. We keep those, command, those two commandments straight. We are not to love the Lord our God as we love ourselves. And we are not to love our neighbor with all our heart. Or our wife. Or our husband. Or our children. That would be idolatry. We are to love the Lord with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we are to love everyone else as ourselves. We owe this debt of love to our neighbors. What, who, who is our neighbor? Who's this neighbor that we owe this debt of love to? Well, it's people who are just like us. It's people who like what we like, don't like the things we don't like. No, that's not who our neighbor is. Jesus told us in Luke 10 in the parable of a good Samaritan who our neighbor is. He said our neighbor is anyone you come in contact with, but... Consider the person you hate the very most, that's your neighbor. That's what's going on in the the story of Good Samaritan. So we have an obligation. We have a debt to love God with all of our heart. And we have an obligation, we have a debt to love our neighbor as ourselves. Another early church father, Origen, from the second century, says the debt of love remains with us permanently and never leaves us. This is a debt which we pay every day and forever owe. That can sound daunting. Oh, I'm supposed to love everyone? I'm supposed to love everyone as, my, as much as I love myself? And you do love yourself. 
I'm supposed to love everyone? That sounds overwhelming. The truth is God by His Holy Spirit has provided every resource necessary for you, Christian, to live a life of obedience to Him. To, to love to obey his command, to pay this debt of love. He says in verse 8 here, Owe no one anything except love to each other. For the one who loves has fulfilled the law. So there's this connection between love and the law. In fact, they are inseparably related to to one another because because love and, and only love fulfills the law. What does he mean here when he says that? The one who loves has fulfilled the law. Well, he's going to illustrate what he means for us by pointing to four of the Ten Commandments. Look at verse 9. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment is summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Let's just look at those. You shall not commit adultery. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says of this, the, second, the seventh commandment, I shall not commit adultery, forbids all unchaste thoughts, words, deeds. And the negative. Positively, this command requires us to preserve our own and our neighbor's chastity in heart, speech, and behavior. If you really love someone, you will not dishonor that person. You will only want for them what is holy and what is right. You will not want for them that which defiles them. That which drives a wedge of separation between them and God. That, God forbid, that which puts their eternal soul in dire jeopardy. You would not want that for someone that you love. When Paul speaks here of, of adultery, you wouldn't, you wouldn't want a person you love to violate their covenant of marriage. You would not want that for them. You would never tempt them to sin against God. That's not what love does. That's what hatred does. Remember Joseph's response when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him? What it was that he said and did, first of all, he refused to the point of running out of the room with his cloak in her hands that she was clinging to. It says this in Genesis 39, verse 8. He refused, and he said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. Joseph is expressing love for Potiphar, a respect for Potiphar, gratitude towards Potiphar. And Joseph said, because of that, I won't sin against him like this. But then he goes on to say this in the end of verse 9. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That is right understanding. You, you, you wouldn't sin against Potiphar, Joseph, because you respect him and you love him because he has been kind to you and you are grateful for that. But ultimately, Joseph understands it's God, ultimately, I would be sinning against if I did this. It's not just sinning against Potiphar. The most important thing here is it would be sinning against God. It's an important perspective for us to have, but even on a human level, adultery... It is not an act of love. It's not an act of love for anybody. 
It's an act of selfishness. We could even call it self-love, but honestly, it's so destructive. You're not loving yourself either. You're worshiping yourself. That's what you're doing. You become more important than anyone else. You're more important than this other person that you want to commit this adultery with. You are more important than their spouse. You are more important than your own spouse. If you're talking about fornicating and not just committing adultery, you've become more important than either of your future spouses. More than that, you've become more important than God in your own eyes. This is true not just of adultery. It's true of any sex outside of God's good and perfect design. You have set yourself up as God, and it is an act of self-worship to the destruction of all others. William Barclay put it this way, when two people allow their physical passions to sweep them away, the reason is not that they love each other too much, but that they love each other too little. It's absolutely right. The the truth is, adultery is an act that has grown out of selfish, sinful, lustful desire. It never, ever, ever, ever grows out of true love. And you hear this. You hear these two people who who have left their families, perhaps, to be together, and they say, we fell in love. What was there to do? Would you want us to deny that? It never grows out of true love. That's a lie. Genuine love fulfills the law prohibiting adultery. That's what genuine love does. Next he says, you shall not murder. This one's not too difficult to understand. Nobody murders someone and then says it's because I love them very much unless they're O.J. Simpson. He's the only one who says anything like that. Again, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says the sixth commandment Thou shalt not kill speaks about murder. It forbids suicide, killing a neighbor. We could add abortion, euthanasia, similar similar crimes against life. Positively, it requires us to do everything to preserve life, both your life and the life of your neighbor. Genuine love, we know this, it does not destroy life. It protects life. I believe it was... uh, California that put the billboards up promoting abortion and said had the audacity had the audacity to include the words love your neighbor what wickedness what perversion what evil he says you shall not steal again the Westminster Shorter Catechism the 8th commandment thou shalt not steal forbids Whatever doth or may unjustly hinder our own or our neighbor's wealth or outward estate. Positively, it requires the lawful procuring and furthering the wealth and outward estate of ourselves and others. If if you love your neighbor, you're not going to rob him. You're not going to sneak into his house at night and get on his lawn tractor and quietly drive it away while he sleeps. You also won't steal time from your employer when he's paying you to do something. You won't steal affection and attention away from your family to whom your affection and your attention belongs. 
You won't rob the church by not using your gifts, by being unfaithful in your attendance, or unwilling to serve or to give. That's not what love does. Love doesn't rob. Love doesn't steal what rightfully belongs to someone else. He says, you shall not covet. One more time from the Westminster. Commandment number 10, thou shalt not covet, forbids all discontentment with our own estate. Envying or grieving at the good of our neighbor and all insubordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. Positively, it requires full contentment with our own condition, with a right and charitable frame of spirit towards our neighbor and all that is his. James Montgomery Boyce points this out. That this command, you shall not covet, strikes at the heart of our materialistic, consumer-oriented culture, which teaches us to covet everything. The biggest problem with covetousness is not the trouble it gets us into, but rather that it makes us insensitive to the needs of others. Instead of helping us to see what their needs are, covetous makes us jealous of others so that we want what they have. <coughs> But that's the truth, isn't it? Covetousness is this disposition of the heart that once and once and once, and, and you hear this sometimes. When you hear people complain about the most petty things that they don't have and that they want, and they might be complaining to someone who's in genuine need or surrounded by people who are in genuine need, and you're thinking, how tone deaf are you? Well, it's covetousness. In the heart, it makes us blind. We can't even see. Covetousness turns us into takers instead of givers. And it happens at the level of the heart. It's not visible most of the time. Most of us have matured enough to not give vent to all of our covetous thoughts. But it happens at the heart, and God knows. God who exposes the heart says then in verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Love fulfills the law. The love of God shed abroad in our hearts gives to the law its full measure of demand. God, God never gave us his moral law so that we would just have a list of do's and don'ts that we could check off. Our, our, our obedience to him was always meant to be an obedience that, that came from love for him and came from a, a desire to be pleasing to him. It came out of thankfulness and joy and worship. And so love and God's law are inseparably connected. The, the law of God is that standard which love fulfills. In, in other words, without Without God's law, without God's revealed will, without God telling us, do these things, don't do these things. Without the last five chapters of Romans, we would sink deeper and deeper into the mire of our own sinful, subjective, self-worshipping definitions of love. We just would. It's our temptation, it's the world we're surrounded in, it's the air we breathe, it's the water we swim in, however you want to picture it, we just would. 
And so even as Paul gives us five chapters that are just the outworking of salvation, these are the things the Holy Spirit produces in the one who he has renewed the mind of. Paul still needs to tell us. Because without it, we'll just continue to redefine and sink into things and come up with excuses and new definitions. This is the new morality we see in the world around us right now. Redefining love at its very nature. Redefining what love is. If you don't affirm my sexual choices... If you don't affirm my gender dysphoria or my eight-year-old's gender dysphoria, eight-year-olds who sometimes think they're dinosaurs, by the way. Oh, if you don't do this, you're unloving. In fact, you're hateful. It's not just that you don't love me, it's that you hate me. Well, of course, what we see going on in the world around us today It's really just the old heresy, the old sin of antinomianism. It is a hatred of the law. It is a hatred of the law of God. It's a rejection of the lordship of Christ, of his rule, of his law. It is a despising of the command, be holy for I am holy. That's what we see going on around us. And the truth is this, no matter what the world screams at you through their megaphones, with their signs and everything else that they want to throw at you, the reality is this, to affirm what God condemns is to do great harm to your neighbor. Who's your neighbor? Everybody. To affirm that which God condemns is not an act of genuine love because genuine love does no harm to its neighbor. And so we are not free to compromise on God's revealed truth. We simply are not. It doesn't matter how much our heart breaks for the person, how fearful we are that our relationship with them is going to deteriorate if we will not buy into the lies that are being spoken and the damage that is being done. We must stand on the truth. And yes, lovingly stand on the truth. Because to do anything else is to hate the person. Now, does that mean that you are always the right person to say something and that it's always the right moment to say it? It does not. I am not calling us here to be the ones who think we are God's appointed prophet to 100% of the people walking the earth in 100% of every situation and we got to just say it out. Not helpful. But we must... Stand on the truth. And we must, we must understand, it must be settled in our hearts what true love is according to God's definition because the world is going to throw everything it can at you to make you think you are hateful and not loving. But if you are about to jump off of that water tower that's right behind us right now, after church, you started heading that way and I said, where are you going? You said, I'm climbing that tower. Why are you climbing the tower? I'm going to, I can fly. If I get a high enough start, today's my day. And I said to you, you know, I think that, let's think about that. Let's talk about that before you, let's not climb today. How about that? You said to me, no, 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 no. I've known my whole life. 
I've known my whole life. Even my parents can look at me and they can say, he's a flyer. We kind of knew. <laughs> we knew he'd come out as a flyer one day. We wouldn't let him come to it. Oh, I've known. I was born for this. I was made for this. And you know what? If you loved me, you'd support me in this. You'd affirm me in this. What a hateful thing to make me deny my core identity as a flyer. Would it be loving if I said, I'm climbing up with you? I affirm this. I celebrate. I will give you a hearty pat on the back and a shove to get you started. (laughs) This is going to be great. Would that be loving? No, because I'm not insane. Because I'm not under the same delusion that you're under if you think you're a flyer. And if I affirm that, it is a wicked act of hatefulness. I would be criminally responsible for that act of hatred. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. How much more when it comes to matters of eternity? I mean, if you jump off and die and go to heaven, one day we'll have a good laugh about it. Maybe like a million years from now, but still. If I affirm you as you plunge off the cliff into hell, what a wicked and depraved act of hatred. Christians then must embrace both the indicatives, the statements of truth, and the imperatives, the commands of the gospel. We don't, we don't take the one and not the other. Those who are in Christ bear the fruit of obedience to the law. They obey God in love and in worship and in joy. That is what produces obedience in the heart of the genuine Christian. And so we must be clear, and Paul has been very clear in the book of Romans. Our, as far as salvation is concerned, we are not under the law. Paul has, has left no room for that. For us to think that it's obedience to the law that will save us. We cannot justify ourselves by keeping the law. Christ fulfilled the law perfectly for us. And so we are not under the law. We are in Christ. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The Lord Jesus Christ is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. He is our justification, our sanctification, our glorification. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. And that is the only grounds of our salvation with no assistance from anything else. And so we fulfill God's law Because we have been saved, not so we will be saved. We we obey because we delight in God. And because we delight in God, we delight in his law. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The psalmist says this in Psalm 119 over and over. I delight in your statutes, verse 16. Verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. In your commandments I find delight, verse 35. For I delight in your commands, which I love, verse 47. Verse 70, I delight in your law. 77, for for your law is my delight. Verse 174, your law is my delight. Elsewhere he says in Psalm 1, verse 2, Blessed is the man whose delight is the law of the Lord. And on this law does he meditate day and night. 
<coughs> Excuse me. And so we can examine ourselves, Christians. We can examine ourselves in this connection between love and the law. We can examine ourselves and see what the state of our love is. Is his law your delight? Or is it burdensome? Is your life marked by obedience or by rebellion? Is your life marked by love? Love for neighbor as God defines it? Or is it marked by selfishness? We can examine ourselves by this and see the state of our love knowing that this is what God's Spirit produces in us. This is what God's Spirit produces in our hearts. And so we are not working to save ourselves. We are resting in Christ. And we are calling on His Holy Spirit and, yes, laboring to walk in obedience to Him for His glory out of joy and for greater joy. I just want to close with this from 1 John chapter 4 as we move into the Lord's Supper now together. John says this, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God loved us, we ought to love one another. This is where love is found. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so as we, as we stand before the Lord aware of our own shortcomings, of all the ways that we have been unloving, of all the ways that we have not loved him as we ought, as we stand convicted with the, the finger of the righteous law of God in our face saying to us, you are not perfect. You are not in yourself holy as God is holy. Then we can look to the Son of God, the spotless Son of God who loved us. We can look to God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, sovereign and righteous and holy judge of all the living and the dead as the one who sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins and in that we can have rest and hope, and joy, and comfort. And we come to this table every week because of how easy it is for us to forget. How easy it is to not fix our eyes on Him, but to to lower them down to this world in which we're living, and so often to turn them internally and make ourselves our own righteousness. And God reminds us week after week in ways we can touch and feel and taste as we come together as his people redeemed by his son that if we belong to him, he holds us in his hand and no one can snatch us out. But it is God himself who loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And 
Propitiation is just a word that means the wrath of God, which was justly coming towards you because of your sin, has now been diverted onto Christ, and He took it all. The cup of God's wrath, which was full and fiery, Christ drank that cup on your behalf. And so we come now and we eat this bread and we drink this cup and we're reminded that there's not an ounce of wrath in it for us because Jesus paid it all. It's also why this table is only for Christians. It's only for those who are are seeking to live lives of obedience to this Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ, who are seeking to bow the knee to him, who are not self-consciously holding on to sin and saying, I'm sure God will, will give me a pass on this one. No, it's for repenting sinners. Those whom in his grace God convicts of sin and unrighteousness, and they seek to turn from it by the power of the Spirit, and they run to Christ. That's what we do as we come to this table. It's a running again every week to Christ to the cross of Christ, where we find salvation and hope. And so I invite you to come to this table if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus. But if you're self-consciously walking in some form of rebellion, we would ask you not to come. And nobody's paying attention to who's coming and who's not. But this is only for those who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all he has invited to this table.